go ahead and get started. I'm already a chapter behind in First Samuel, and I'm not going to catch up today by any stretch. So uh, didn't even deal with chapter three last week. So let's go ahead and why don't we stand and we'll read chapter three? It's not even on the docket this morning, but we got to catch up somehow. So we are in the midst of dealing with Hannah and Samuel, and uh, so. Last week we saw God's judgment upon Eli for being a bad parent. And so Hannah has Samuel. She gives him to the Lord to serve the uh, tabernacle as she had uh, promised. We read in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place, and the lamp of God had not gone out. That means it, um, it was still night, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel and said to him, and he said, Here am I, and ran to Eli and said, Here am I, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, And Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end, and I declare, and I declare to him that I will, you know, about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because the sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them, which is why we made such a big thing about it last week, because the God made it very clear how he felt about it. Verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned by sacrifice or offering forever. And again, that's, Old Testament atoning and forgiveness of sins is not actual forgiveness of sins. It was national forgiveness of sins. Uh, it's not to say those things couldn't be atoned for in Jesus Christ. Eli, I believe, was a believer. But that sin that he performed there was not going to be forgiven. God was going to hold him to that. There was no way he could get around that. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here am I. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord be, was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That is, everything that he said as a prophet came true. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, here we not only uh, kind of conclude to some degree with Eli, but um, it sets up what's going to follow. When the Lord says, I'm about to do something that's going to make everybody who hears it ears tingle, that's what's going to take place in chapter 4 and uh, with the uh, things that we'll see there. But here, Samuel as a boy learns to discern and obey the word of the Lord as the Lord begins to unfold his plan for them. And we notice the connection between verses 1 and 2 where on the one case, Eli is, uh, his eyes are going dim and the Lord is not sending any vision. So you kind of see Eli in his, uh, not disciplining his sons, allowing that sin to take place. Had uh, God had, re- had quit speaking to him, quit giving visions, and so to maybe illustrate that his eye, his physical eyes are growing dim, <clears throat> and uh, and so we might think, well, we have the word of God, so that can never happen to us. But if the Lord withholds His Spirit from us, so that we cannot understand or agree with and embrace and grow from the Word of God, then I think really the same thing is taking place. The problem in Eli's day was uh, with the reception or the lack of reception from God's Word. It wasn't on God's part. It wasn't so much that God was withholding His Word. It was that they didn't want to hear God's Word. And so Eli is, I think, kind of representative of the nation in the situation that they're in right now. But Samuel's eyesight was clear and uh, the Lord reveals himself to him. Um, <clears throat> so, Samuel isn't able to discern God's word, though, and still, until excuse me, he stops seeing it as Eli's word, as man's word, and, and, he, and he's told, no, this is God's word, and once he understands it's God's word, why well, now he under, he's able to receive it. And, again, not, not to make too much of that, but it just seems like, Kind of an interesting illustration the way this is recorded for us. Samuel's attitude, you know, he, he's not getting anywhere while he thinks Eli's speaking, but as soon as he understands this is God, now he's ready to hear uh, what God has to say. And I think that's just a great way for us to think about when we come to church. You know, if we come to church not to hear what I've got to say, but to hear what God has got to say to us. And when we come with the right attitude, then I think that's what God speaks that's when we um, can benefit from it. So this is not a manual for what to do when you hear voices at night, right? That's a uh, past. I think Hebrews 1 explains to us that uh, all those visions and, and one way that God used to reveal himself to man is over with. Now it's been done through Jesus Christ. And the only way we can know what God revealed through Jesus Christ was what the official witnesses have told us about that, which of course is what we have in not just the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament. So that's God's final revelation to us. And much damage has been done when people um, think that we still live in a day and age in which God speaks to people that way. And we won't go into that anymore right now. 
we also see something else of the Lord in this. And of course, that's one of the things as, as I'm reading through these first few chapters. This is all about God. And we're going to see this especially when we get to chapters 4 through 6. The way God reacts to sin. The way God, we saw last week, the way God reacts to parents who claim to know God but do not raise their children to know the Lord. Who do not discipline their children. Uh, God, to God, is a big deal. So much so that he's going to wipe out Eli's family, not just from existence, but from serving in the, in the tabernacle and so forth. And so, there's something about the Lord here. And then, and then in this passage, we see that he's gentle and patient with those who listen to him. First, Samuel. He's stern with Eli because Eli is doing what he knows not to, what he knows he shouldn't do. Eli, or Samuel, though, we see the patience with the Lord here as he develops Samuel to become a good and faithful servant. And, uh, he's patient, you know, three times, really four times. He, he calls out to Samuel until he's ready to hear. And so there, there's that too. And, and we always want to, when we see these things, yes, God can be stern. God is a holy God. God is a God of wrath and justice when he must be. But God is a loving God. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who love him. And remember that we are dust. And, and that's good for us to know. Um, and again, we there are some who ask all they want to think of God as. And, and it's easy to go one way or another. But we want to have a well-rounded understanding of God. So um, he's not like us. He's not frustrated with Samuel. Not understanding who he is at the time. He's just patient and he brings Samuel along in his time. And, but we also notice that God did not shield little, and Samuel was young, the, the original here would indicate that he was a young man, maybe, you know, hard to know exactly when this was, but, but young. He doesn't shield him from the subject of sin and judgment. Uh, Eli said, I want you to tell me everything that he said, and he said that, not maybe not knowing exactly what he was going to hear, but Samuel tells him everything, and, and that was what God was going to do to punish Eli and, and, and the things he was going to do in Israel. And so we got to be careful, and I mentioned this a little bit last week, careful of treating our children like irresponsible imbeciles, which I'm, I'm afraid too many parents do. They, they think that they're, well, boys will be boys, kids will be kids, let them spend hours and hours on video games or whatever. And I'm not saying that all that, they, all that is wrong, but I'm just saying that uh, we are here to learn about God. Right? And we're not here to just play all the time. And even children, uh, as they mature, as they develop mentally, that, that we are to, uh, to that degree, teach them about God and train them to learn to think. I mean, what, what do we have here today? People who cannot think. They emote, but, but no one can think logically. And, and we're being told it's wrong to expect people to think logically. And this is a result of bad upbringing. And, you know, someone's going to be answering for these things. So, playing is fine as children get grief. You know, I'm not against that. Um, I, I'm not against adults playing now and then, right? But understanding God and our place before Him is much more important, and it's never too early to teach them the whole counsel of God, and we see this with Samuel. Um, so, verses 15 and, and forward, 
I think there's some interesting here, things here to consider as a preacher, certainly, and as those uh, who, as we approach the Word of God, the mark of a true preacher is one who is willing to say the hard things as well as the easy things. One thing Eli is teaching Samuel is when God speaks to you, that's what you relate. You don't water it down because you think it might hurt somebody's feelings, right? And, and I certainly, when I read that, I, I take that personally as a pastor of a church as what he preaches, he teaches God's word that what I see here, I pass along as God's word. I don't read this and say, okay, now, how can I twist this to make everybody happy? And not necessarily convey what's being said. You know, that, that's what so many do, unfortunately. So, um, if a, if a preacher never places you under the criticism of God's word, never reveals sin in us, only seeks to comfort us, we might wonder if we're really hearing from the Lord. If, if, if he's not well-rounded, he's not preaching the whole counsel of God. So I certainly take like verse 17 is something that applies to me as a pastor. What it, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. Um, and then conversely, I would say we've got to be careful. And I, I, again, I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody that I don't always stand up here and just beat you down, just talk about sin, just talk about the wrath of God, because that's not helpful either. We Just because maybe some go too far one way or another doesn't mean that we should do that. And certainly there have been times in history and ministries where it's all about hell, fire, and damnation. And it certainly that is a part of the gospel. It's part of, of, of really the bad news, so that's, the gospel can't be good news if there's not bad news, right? I mean, in other words, if there's nothing to be saved from, then what is the message of salvation, right? But you don't want to, it's not all about that. It's about what the blessings of being in Christ and the joy that we can have being in Christ. It's not just about heaven or hell in that sense. And so, uh, we want to do both. Uh, to, to care for the sheep, to give them good food as well. So there's a great responsibility that we have to the Word of God, uh, whether we're learning it, preaching it, or receiving it. Um, it's a grace to have it, but it's a privilege uh, that comes with it uh, in responsibility. And God certainly doesn't have this church here just so that we can know a whole lot of things about God. It begins there. You, you know, those who don't preach the Word really uh, are not teaching their people about God. And that's why we're created. But it's not just about knowing facts about God. It is being transformed by those things to be good servants, both to God and man, to be profitable servants. And so I think everything in our account keeps saying that how one lives in light of God means the difference between living as one ought and being blessed and being condemned. Eli had the revelation of God and did not live accordingly and paid the price for that. And it's, so, you know, these are things that we see constantly. Okay, so that finishes up last week in the sermon last week. So let's just recap the other things that we dealt with. We saw, uh, first of all, that the Bible says a person is worthless unless he, when he doesn't serve him. And that's in a context, but, you know, Eli's sons were Worthless, people were called worthless, sons of Belial. They were worthless men. 
because they were not living as human beings supposed to live. So this, again, this PRC is from God's view. The Lord held Eli accountable for his lack of parenting, and uh, he part of that means that he they were they all died prematurely, which we'll see here in chapter four. Uh, we also saw though that Eli was a good man, and by that I mean a believer, and yet he still was judged for his disobedience. So, you know, as we've seen in First Corinthians, uh, that many were sick and dying because they were living in ways that were contrary to their profession. The Lord, at some point, is going to bring about repentance or is going to take you out of the world if you're a saint of God for sin. And then every promise is the Lord, that the Lord makes, even of judgment, will come to pass if he looked ahead and saw where all these things that God said about Eli's family came true and happened. So as we come to chapter 4, let me just read a few verses of chapter 4 to see what's going on here. First of all, let's read the first three verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle. Against the Philistines, they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Philistines drew up in the line against Israel, and when the battle spread, the Israel, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the covenant here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemy. So they, they, they asked the right question but the problem is they weren't asking God and they weren't waiting for God to answer. They, they just come up with their own plan which let's take the ark, uh, this good luck charm. Uh, it, it's, we've done it before although it's been with mixed success. Remember this was tried when they tried to enter Israel the promised land the first time and was soundly defeated. But it was also uh, used with success when they marched around Jericho. The ark needed them, and God blessed them there. So they decided to take matters in their own hands, and they're soundly defeated again. Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, Eli's sons, are killed, and the ark is captured. So the worst possible scenario in a lot of ways. Let's skip down to verse 16. And the men said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. So there's, they're soundly defeated, and, and, and one of the Benjamites runs back to report back to Eli. So he says, I am one who's come back, here in verse 16, from battle. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there was also a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. <clears throat> now the daughter-in-law of the wife of Phinehas, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the woman uh, attended her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, or Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, so I would not 
necessarily recommend that as a good biblical name to name a kid. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So, that's kind of where, that's where we begin. We're starting to see God's word coming true, what he said was going to happen. And as I stop and try to figure out, okay, why is this account recorded for us in the sense of what can we learn from it? It seems that one of the most obvious lessons here is to be made is uh, we, we cannot and must not use God as a good luck charm. As if, okay, it's life's not going too well for me as it wasn't for these elders and the Israelites. And so, well, what can I do about it? Well, let's try God. Let's see if we can't do something, use him to turn our fortunes around. And, and for a lot of people, that's Christianity, right? That's their faith. And, and as we said, this is something they've tried before. And uh, it's, it doesn't always work well because there's, there's certain reasons. Whatever it was uh, a good thing is when God told them to do it. It's when they're trying to do it on their own that we see this is uh, does not work out too well. Uh, one commentator said this is a study of archaeology. A-R-K, archaeology, right? And uh, we're seeing here the misuse of the ark. Um, and it, so it doesn't seem there's anything inherently wrong with with the ark going before them. The problem is, as you can see here, they see it as a good luck charm. And notice in verse 3, it will save us. This wasn't about, well, that's, that's, there was no repentance, there was no falling on their faces before God, there was no saying, God, what should we do? Let's take this, how we think of God, this object uh, that's used in the worship of God, and we're going to use it as a good luck charm in some way. And, and that's something that we have to be very careful about. And, and no doubt one of the reasons they lost the, the war here, this, this battle, was because Eli's sons were involved in it. They probably had a hand in bringing the ark, and, and God no doubt wasn't going to bless it for that reason as well. Um, but primarily, it's just that they were just doing their own thing. It wasn't about God's will, it was about their will. And so we need to be careful to understand that there is no prayer that can be said, no ritual performed that can obligate the Lord to do our bidding and that's an easy error for us to fall into. We think that if we jump through certain hoops or pray a certain prayer, that uh, that's going to take care of the problem. That's part of the solution to our problems. Uh, not always the removal of problems, but it is obviously prayer is, is something where we're seeking God's will, though. Where we're praising Him, where we're thanking Him, where we're making it all about Him. Prayer is not... I have an agenda, and Lord, I need you to help me with my agenda, which is what's going on here. We come to do his bidding, not our bidding. And so these elders asked the right question, why these things have come upon them. But they, uh, their, their answer is merely man-made reason. And so the Philistines consider the ark a god, and so... Uh, and Israel's treating it like a god. So it's no wonder that Philistines do what they do. 
because these things end up taking the place of God. In other words, if I think that a certain kind of prayer, or remember Jesus told uh, the Pharisees, be careful of thinking that with a multitude of words, God's going to hear your prayer. It's not the form of prayer. It's not just that you pray. It's the heart. Remember, we, we looked at the verse in the letter, the last chapter of Isaiah, where God, who uh, the earth is a switchstool, but he listens to the contrite heart. That's the one he, he wants to hear. It's your attitude. It's why you're coming to him that, that makes all the difference. <clears throat> so the real problem here is that they assume that if they bring the representation of God's presence with them, God is going to be forced to deliver them. I mean, after all, he's got to protect his honor, right? And that might be giving them too much credit, but that's in essence what they're doing. They are attempting to manipulate God. And that, to manipulate God like this, is an attack upon his glory. And it's what passes for a lot of religion today. Uh, It's really about us and God wanting us to be happy or successful and not about God. Um, so you have books like, you know, the easy one, Your Best Life Now. Well, we're the subject. Our happiness is the goal and we want it right now. My best life now. I mean, if the title itself is an attack upon the glory of God, certainly an attack upon the word of God. And God better give it to you. It isn't that much different, I think, with these elders. It's kind of like a son who asks a girl on a date, and then he goes and he asks his dad for the keys. Dad, I've already asked his girl for the date, so I need the keys. You know, you don't want to be the bad guy. You, he's putting his dad on the spot. I, I've got an agenda now. I know that I really can't get what I want if I don't have a car that, you know, she's going to be pretty unimpressed with me, so I'm going to the dad, but I've already got my, I want him to do my agenda. And that's sometimes how we pray and how we deal with God. And, and her father, you know, rightly said, I'm not going to be manipulated, manipulated like that. So just because I've made plans uh, doesn't mean that you've made plans, doesn't mean that uh, I've got to be the bad guy now. Uh, you, you're doing this wrong. And I think that's how we treat the Lord sometimes. And we've got to be careful about that. And so there's great deception in the church. If you simply have faith, enough faith, you can gain anything or achieve anything. And there's, they're not even, they don't even try a lot of times to sound biblical. It, it, it's faith in your faith. And it, you become, you know, again, Kenneth Copeland's all about that the word faith movement is that just as God created the heavens and the earth through speaking, so we can create what we want as we speak it in faith. It's the same thing, same parallel. And this nonsense is propagated by lots of teachers. One of them that uh, I've read about was Marilyn Hickey, who said, speak to your circumstances and speak faith to them to create in them and God will create what you are speaking it's just it's, a, it's just nonsense Robert Tilton, I don't know if any of y'all remember Robert Tilton, he was big I think in the 80's maybe into the 90's um, 
He taught that your faith releases the creative force of God into existence. So your faith releases God's power. Kenneth Hagin actually put out a book called Having Faith in Your Faith. You know, I mean, again, it's, it's calling it what it is. At least he was being honest. Another title he released was How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. He actually wrote in that book, It is a waste of a Christian's time to pray that I will give him the victory. They have to write their own ticket. So again, it's, it's what they're doing here. And yet they, when these, these kind of people read stuff like this, maybe not this particular account, but when something works, supposedly, they get their way, they take that to me as an example that we can do the same thing. It doesn't matter what covenant they're living under. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about that. Uh, they, they just look for things like that to illustrate what they already believe. But, of course, you know, okay, but that's them. What about us? Well, have we been guilty of having expectations for God that we have come up with outside of the Bible without any real consideration of what God wants and now we want God to get on board with it? Well, all of a sudden we have problems and so, well, Lord, now I'm going to really start praying. And, yes, ma'am. Sure. Um, I say ask for anything, obviously not everything, but anything that would biblically be supported. In other words, your you, you check your motivation, why you're asking for something. You know, in other words, so it's not just, you know, I want a new car so I can ask. Well, you know, there's a lot more things that need to be considered. But Hezekiah, again, Hezekiah asked God for something. Hezekiah lived under a covenant where, uh, Life and living in the land was the big blessing of living under the uh, Abrahamic Mosaic covenant. So he asked the Lord to let him live longer. It was the Lord's will. So in other words, he had a biblical precedent for asking. Now, why all his motivations, we don't know. Obviously, it was God's will to... Um, let him live in that extra 15 years, right? So, uh, but, but, so he had every reason to ask. And, and so, and, but I can't speak beyond that with the Old Testament because of that. In other words, they live in a different covenant, so their blessings were physical a lot, in a lot of ways. That, that they expected, they were promised those things if they were faithful to the Lord, right? Something we're not promised, right? We're not promised a long life, we're not promised children, we're not promised money, any of those things. We are promised 
to be with Christ someday. But bringing it over to the, you know, the, to the okay, faith size of mustard seed. And these are legitimate questions. I have to do um, the, the mountain that can be moved. In other words, it's not the, it's not the amount of faith, right? You can have faith. In other words, any kind of faith. Faith isn't the important thing. It's, it's the God who your faith is in. That, that's, that matters. I, I think that's part to do with the size of the mustard seed and so forth. The mountain is whatever is an obstacle. But it might, you know, that cancer might not be an obstacle. We, we think of it as an obstacle. And it's not that we spawn to ask the Lord to remove it, but we might, it might not be, that might not be the mountain that's God, God sent that there for us to serve Him in it. And so it is the source of blessing. The, the treasure that I'm allowed to lay up in heaven is the, what I'm, uh, the obstacle that I'm facing with right now. Well, anyway, so the, the point then is, whatever this is, that assuming that it's something that should be removed, because not everything we pray for should be removed. We, we pray the best we know how sometimes. But if, assuming that it's something that's in God's will should be removed, if we go to the Lord and, and trust Him and say, Lord, this is your, I know you can do this, it'll be done. But, but again, the idea there is not that if you can just muster up a, enough faith, whatever you want is yours. You know, that, that's where it becomes a selfish endeavor as opposed to Lord, I know that you can take care of these things. That, that no problem is too big for you. And if it's your will that this thing be removed, as Paul said, you know, if it's your will, uh, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It was his mountain at that point. And Lord, he, and I, I, I think Paul had faith at least the size. Again, it's not so much about the size of your faith, right? But and the Lord says, no, that mountain is put there for a reason. I'm not taking it away. But we're just seeing how it works. That, that God is the one doing this thing. And, and our, we are become believing in the Lord. And then those things will be taken care of one way or another. So, again, and it's a it's a vast subject. It's a subject that you have to take a lot of things through and take all the different scriptures through. But the faith-like movement are have taken these things and made it all about us being able to create what we want just as God did. As we speak faith, we speak these words and they become, they create what we want. It's a lot like, and this is sometimes the way it comes across too, is you visualize what you want. And I, I, I want this thing. And so I start to visualize it and, and the Lord will bring it about. It's a form of creation. But it's all about, well, like I said, it's in the, the title, Write Your Own Ticket with God. That couldn't be a more unbiblical uh, pursuit and, and understanding. Of what, what, am I here to you know, do the Lord's will or am I here to do my own will? And, and again, I'm not in any way saying that we aren't to pray for problems or things that we face as long as it's not contrary to God's word. But we have to understand that sometimes we want God to remove the very thing that He's put there on purpose, and and so the prayer is us coming to the point.
point of accepting those things as well, not just trying to manipulate God. So anyway, there, again, there's a lot of things to be said. It's, a, it's a, certainly a deep and vast subject. Um, but again, we don't want to be guilty of having expectations for God that have come up outside of the Bible because of perhaps faulty biblical understanding. Things don't go the way we think they should, and all of a sudden, uh, we, we, God doesn't answer the prayer we want. So now all of a sudden we've got a problem with God. He's the bad guy. I got that son with his father. I've made this date. Now, Dad, why aren't you jumping on board? It's not his dad's fault he did that without asking, right? And so God's not the bad guy. Uh, we, uh, when, when we start to live our life without considering his goals and his will, uh, this is what happens. So we want to have good biblical training and understanding so we can understand that it's God's expectations, it's his will that we are to focus on, not him bringing about our expectations. And that's the difference right there. It's using God for my expectations, just like the unfortunate phrase, God is my co-pilot. That suggests I'm driving this thing and God is there to help me, to guide me. Well, no, you know, I'm on, I'm, I'm on God's back. I, I'm, he's the one doing this thing, and I'm here to help him do what he wants to do. And, and it's just, it's just, it's, it's the whole, I think it's, it's all connected. So the underlying problem that makes us so susceptible to all this, that is because religious magic, and I think that's all that this, these books, these things are, it's religious magic that's trying to create something that's for your own benefit. That's easier than personal holiness. To study the principles of God's word and apply them in loving service is a difficult, constant, lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong struggle to be like Christ, to to lower yourself, to see yourself as a servant, to love someone unconditionally, to be able to, you know, somebody say something that you didn't appreciate and not just fall apart, right? That's that's difficult stuff. And to pray that God would make you more like Christ is one thing, but to say, God, I've got, I, I would like you to grant me three wishes. That's the easy thing to do. That's that's the fun thing to do. Is I've got I've got an agenda now. Lord, help me on my agenda. It, it's and you understand. Why someone says, this is about God's will, not your will, and that's a difficult thing. It is to feel in there in John 6, remember when Jesus was talking about sovereign grace. And they were saying, Lord, that's a difficult thing. Who could understand it? You know, most of them took off. I don't want to hear that. And I think that's the reason we have some of these problems. So we want to be careful that we don't kind of, I think what's going on here with Israel is they stopped saying God is worthy and they started saying God is useful. You know, God can be useful in our agenda and that's not, that's, that's a, that's a slippery slope when you start thinking about that. So God means for defeat here because first of all, he's going to judge Hophni and Phineas. So it was always the Lord's will that they were going to be defeated in this particular case. Um, and so they could have prayed all they want to. There was sin in the camp, much like with Achan, remember, and, and Joshua and, or uh, Jericho and Ai. Uh, there's sin in the camp. You guys, you guys are 
you are allowing Hophni and Phineas to commit adultery at the tabernacle door. You're allowing them to take the fat that they weren't supposed to have at the, at the, uh, when they, people bring uh, sacrifices. All the sin that we've read about in Judges was still, or excuse me, in Judges was, is, because this is still the Judges period. There, Israel is, is, uh, in full-blown idolatry to some degree. And yet they're saying, Lord, bless us. Give us victory. Well, no, you, you don't need victory. You need to, to be defeated. You need to be humble. It's like, until God bless America. Well, you know, why? Why in the world would God bless America? Now, it doesn't mean we can't pray that God would send revival. But the blessing is not going to be that God gives us economic prosperity. That, really, I think has been more of a curse for, for America and the church. You know, so we've got to, you know, there, this is why the defeat was always going to happen. And we can see this clearly now. Um, it turns out God, at times, will allow his name to be, to suffer in the world. Because he's chastening his people. You know, because we think, well, Lord, bless our church and, and give us a, a good, you know, get fill up the pews so that the world will see us and, and what we're doing is we worship you and, 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 and we're making your name great among the nations. Well, there's a sense in which that can happen. But there's a sense in which, uh, God's already told us, so we'll get more into this second message. Uh, it, remember it's all in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, the world thinks you're stupid. The world thinks you're foolish. They, they think the gospel is foolish. And if you believe in it, the world thinks we're stupid. Because we believe in what they think is foolish. So we're not going to impress the world by looking successful. And, and a lot of Christians struggle with that. I think all of us struggle with that. We're born legalistic, and I'll explain more of that in the second message there. I think it's what, it's what, what Paul's point is there in chapter 4. So, um, they haven't been concerned with God's will, but it turns out God says, okay, I'm going to humble you before the world, and in doing that, I'm going to make my name great, but it's, got to, it's not going to be through your success. It's going to be, of course, as we're going to see in the next chapter next week, when they bring the, the Philistines bring the ark and make it and put it beside Dagon, their God, and in the morning, Dagon's fallen over. So God's got his own agenda. He's, his work is going to get done, and sometimes that means we're going to look stupid or weak or defeated in the process. And we can't get um, sidetracked by that. So the press releases on both sides no doubt said that God had failed Israel, but in reality he's restoring his honor among Israel. And it's just it's going to take time. And so one and we'll stop here. One of the things this reminds us and teaches us is that God is and can do all sorts of things at one time in one situation. What we think is defeat could be God doing something, getting us ready for something else. Or, you know, or God's got something else going on over here, and, and our part in this is to suffer defeat or to look silly, but it's going to work out later on somewhere else or you know later on in our life. And we're seeing that here. Right now, it thinks like God's glory has departed. Well, the issue is 
the ark being captured by the Philistines is not God's glory being departing. God's glory had already departed. But they had already given up on God and started to become idolatrous. So, uh, you know, again, they're, they're looking at things really backwards and not realizing that the problem is you, the problem is not the Philistines, the problem is you, and I'm going to get you guys right, and then I'll just come back to the Lord God. Okay. So, all sorts of stuff going on there, and we'll continue these thoughts we're going next week. Any questions upon the second service that you would uh, open up our eyes to see the things that are going on in the Corinthian church, why it applies to us, and Lord, see even in people's these people's mistakes and their sin, or warnings and what's going on so that we can save ourselves perhaps from some of these things and be able to serve you as we are. We ask your blessings on all that we do. In Jesus' name.